Grace to you and peace from God the Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. The word of God that uh, acquires our attention for a few moments this morning is the epistle appointed for this morning from Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. The apostle writes, Become co-imitators of me, brothers, and consider those others who so go about their lives, as you have a pattern, us. For many go about their lives, about whom I've spoken before, and again now say tearfully, many go about their lives as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is the appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our commonwealth is in heaven, from where we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our sickly bodies into one which shares the form of his glorious body, according to the energy or power by which he is able to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's just six days now. Six days until what PBS news celebrities like Jim Lehrer, Gwen Ifill, and Bill Moyers in a series of commercials have been describing repeatedly as the most important election in American history. They don't actually explain why they think so, but I think we can intuit some reasons. Wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, crime and corruption in our own nation's cities, economic woes of volatility in national and global markets, the mortgage crisis, and mounting unemployment. Perhaps election 2008 will be important or crucial for the reason that Dr. Vells offered in his wrap-up from German days, that we face a choice between continuation of the American experiment or a resort to European models of government. And about German days, I want to offer this encouragement. I understand that there are more activities around here than any of us can reasonably participate in. But if you happened to think that German days was just about Germany, that would be like saying that the letter to the Philippians is just about Philippi in the first century. While German days was not a visit to an inner city, ethnically diverse neighborhood, It was a cross-cultural experience and eminently practical because we who are or who will become pastors and deaconesses and other theological leaders must be able to read the culture and explain it to the people we serve just as much as we must be able to read the scriptures and interpret them. So, in anticipation of and perhaps in apprehension of next Tuesday's elections, this morning's text offers an important opportunity for orientation or reorientation. The text's outline is straightforward, an exhortation and two supporting reasons, one negative, the other positive. Paul urges his readers, become co-imitators of me. Paul makes up a word here which he never uses again. And according to some commentators, the grammar isn't all that neat and tidy here. So we probably have to conclude that the apostle said exactly what he wanted to say the way he wanted to say it. 
He invites imitation of himself, but not because he thinks he's got it all together. On the contrary, earlier in this letter, Paul says he wants to gain Christ and be found in him. He wants to know him, share in his sufferings, and become like him in his death in order that he might attain the resurrection of the dead. But he acknowledges, not that I have already obtained all this or am already perfect. Paul urges imitation of himself, imitating Jesus. And he urges finding other suitable role models as well. Those others who go about their lives in the same way as he, pressing on to make all these things their own because Christ Jesus has made him and them his own. Whether Paul or another, the lives the apostle urges the Philippians to imitate are one pattern, a single pattern centered in Jesus. The first reason why Paul exhorts the Philippians to such imitation is that there are many who go about their lives as enemies of the cross of Christ. And let's make no mistake, these many live inside the church as well as outside it. Last Sunday, a guest speaker in the Bible class at my congregation described an incident when he was a student here, seeking a job at a large local company. One of the interviewers was a guy who could be heard using all sorts of coarse language. The student was interviewed by that man. As the man examined the student's application and discovered his enrollment here, he remarked, I'm a member of the Missouri Synod, too. You see, spiritual formation in the seminary community includes not just such disciplines as chapel attendance and Bible reading and prayer and whatever else you might categorize as spiritual. If we accept the premise that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, then spiritual formation also includes our habits of language, of eating and drinking, of personal hygiene and exercise, in short, of everything that combines to signify who we are because of whose we are. We all are susceptible, and we all, to some degree, succumb to influences that contradict who we are in Christ, that contradict our faith in and allegiance to God. Everyday American culture is a dangerous environment for Christians because it constantly appeals to us to make gods of our appetites, sexual, gustatory, and material, to set our minds on, that is, to make most important in our attitudes and affections, earthly things rather than on God who made all things. American culture invites us to think we have nothing to repent and so we glory in our shame. We all are every day susceptible, and we all, to some degree, succumb to imitating the wrong models, and we need to repent. Not simply because following those models makes us or leads unfailingly to destruction, but because, and even more because, following such models makes us enemies of the cross of Christ. They contradict the very vehicle of our salvation. Paul's second reason reminds us that we are not, first, 
Americans or Brazilians or Germans or Ghanaians or South Africans or Burmese or Thai or Malaysians or Vietnamese or Japanese, and there are members of the residential seminary community whose ethnic or national backgrounds are from all these places. And when you include seminary students in distance education programs, there are several more. Of us, or even for us, says the apostle, citizenship or commonwealth is in heaven. The pronoun our comes first in that sentence. And while our usual translations accurately express the simple sense, they don't seem to capture the significance of Paul's remark. Christians are different. We do not belong to the many. Whatever our earthly nationality, we are first citizens of heaven. And I'm inclined to say we are naturalized or re-naturalized citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Once we were no people, but now we are God's people because once or previously we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. In one respect, of course, heaven is our homeland where we hope to go when this life is over and when the resurrection of the body takes place to usher in the life everlasting. But our heavenly citizenship is something that pertains even while we remain here on earth. Citizenship, I think, communicates affiliation and belonging. Commonwealth, on the other hand, indicates perhaps an entailment of citizenship in that it reminds us what belonging offers and performs. Too frequently lacking in American culture today is a sense of commonwealth, that the benefits of belonging are for all, that all are to have a share in those benefits, and lacking most of all, that we all are responsible to see to such sharing. The commonwealth of heaven, its common wealth is God. As citizens of the United States, if we visit a foreign country, we believe and we hope that the reach of the American government through its embassies and consulates will be sufficient to protect us. And that in most cases is true. But it's not like the reach of God, who daily guards and defends us against every evil and misfortune, warding off all sorts of danger and disaster, as Luther writes in the large catechism, and who holds our life in himself, in Christ, even if our physical, earthly, mortal life is taken away by disease or violence. The threats of our world are real. And the stakes in our national elections next week are high. I've seen my annuities shrink. I wonder into what kind of world my grandsons will grow up. One of my models recently has been my son. He's been without a regular job since May of last year. He's interviewed often, but nothing's panned out, at least not yet. Nevertheless, God has kept him and his family by providing a steady stream of freelance work and other temporary projects, and my son insistently acknowledges God's faithfulness and blessing. He models for me, one who goes about his life with diligence and integrity, 
and with quiet but constant confidence that he belongs to God, and that therefore his commonwealth is in heaven, and that the one who rules from there is watchful and caring. What's going to happen after next Tuesday's elections? or after the new president is inaugurated next January 20th, or when the new Congress is sworn in, or new governors and state legislatures, will we be able to transform more provincial control to Iraqi civilian and military authorities? Will the markets continue yesterday's rebound or undergo today a massive sell-off? Don't know. Don't know. Don't know. Don't know. Don't know don't know. I do, however, know this. I'm baptized. You are baptized. We are baptized into Christ. We belong to him. He redeemed us precisely for this purpose, that we may be his own and live under him in his kingdom. His government, his reign reaches from heaven to earth to order our lives now we are fully protected citizens, and he will see to it that we get to our proper home. May this knowledge, this faith, encourage and empower how we go about our lives now as God's chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his own people. Amen.